Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Matthew 3. We'll be in 1 through 6 as we, uh, as we just read. Just a reminder for you, uh, for all of you children and also husbands, that next week is what? Mother's Day, right? And so not just children, but husbands as well, because that's the way it is. You don't just get something for your mom, you have to get something for your wife as well. Let's take a uh, poll. Whose favorite holiday is Mother's Day? Anybody? Whose favorite holiday is Christmas? Okay, hands down. Easter? Okay. Your own birthday. Little narcissist. <laughs> Valentine's Day. Flag Day. Arbor Day, this past week, Arbor Day. No? What about Halloween? Okay, some of you Halloween. I gotta be honest with you. Halloween is my least favorite holiday. Not for religious reasons. I just don't like it. And uh, long story, if you ever want to hear the story, just invite me to coffee and I'm happy to tell you about it. Uh, and then I met my wife, Casey, and her birthday is October 31st. So I thought, I never have to celebrate Halloween again. I can always just celebrate Casey's birthday. So I married her. And uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't the main reason. It was a main reason. And, uh, and so I married her, and then we had kids, and she decided she wanted to celebrate Halloween, and she would just forego her birthday. And so now I do it. That's my Mother's Day and birthday gift to her. That's marriage, right? I mention all of that because this passage this morning reminds me of Halloween costumes. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to describe a costume, and I want you to tell me if you know who I am describing. I'm just going to give you an outfit, and you see if you can guess who I'm describing. Wait till I finish the outfit. Don't yell it out as I'm still describing it. But kids, this is an opportunity for you to play along, all right? So as soon as I finish describing the outfit, I'll give you an opportunity and then you can yell it out. Number one, red velvet suit with black belt boots and a bushy white beard. Santa, good job. All right, number two, purple outfit, green dyed hair, white face paint with scars around the mouth making a smile. There you go, good job. All right. Number three, blue spandex suit with a big red S on the chest and a big red cape. Superman. Superman. All right. Next one, wire-rimmed glasses, a cape, a lightning scar on his forehead, and a magic wand. You are doing great. Number five, this is going to be some, somewhat harder for some of you kids. Maybe your parents will know this one better. A fedora, a leather jacket, a whip a revolver, and a satchel. There we go. Man, that was great. One more. This will be really hard for some of you. Cargo shorts, size 14 tennis shoes, big beard, a gun manufacturer's t-shirt, multiple pocket knives, Dan Jones, our own Deacon Dan. See here, he's not here. Man, oh, that would have been great if he'd have been here. He would have stood up and he would have been wearing that exact outfit. Every, I haven't even seen him every week. All right. Now, why are those so easy? All right, why are those so easy? Because sometimes just hearing a description of what someone is wearing 
tells us who we're talking about. And that's going to be the case today in our passage as we meet a guy named John the Baptist. We'll see that there is a whole lot of theological significance to the outfit uh, that he's wearing, his wardrobe of choice. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the passage together. As I often do, I ask you first just to pray for yourself, that the the Lord would give you an undivided, undistracted heart and mind this morning. And then will you pray that for those around you as well, for us corporately as a church. And then lastly, would you pray for me, that the Lord would help me and empower me to proclaim his word faithfully. So Father, we love you. We confess we can do nothing apart from you. And yet, by your grace, you have enabled us to come together and to hear your word and to sing your word and to pray your word and to proclaim your word and listen to it. And so, I pray that you would bless our time this morning, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and open our eyes, that we would behold especially the glory of your Son as he's revealed in your perfect, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, look at verse 1 of Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We begin with these words, in those days. What days? Well, we were literally just talking about Jesus' childhood, and now we've fast-forwarded a couple of decades to somewhere, this is probably 27, 28, or 29 A.D. or so. So why does Matthew use this phrase, in those days? I think the reason that he does so is not because he's trying to give some sort of chronological thing. This isn't happening at the exact same time that they've come back from Egypt and settled uh, in, uh, in Nazareth. Again, Jesus is just a kid when that happens. The reason that he uses this phrase is because this particular phrase is used dozens of, time in the old, uh, dozens of times in the Old Testament. So I think that Matthew is playing on that. Readers familiar with the Old Testament would recognize that phrase of being of particular biblical significance. That phrase, in those days, is used a lot of times in the Old Testament, and it's always profound. And Matthew is writing from a a particular perspective where he is going to be, of all the Gospels, probably the the one that is most Old Testament-saturated. And so he's playing off of that. He's expecting his readers to be able to make some of those connections. And so what's so important that he uses this phrase, in those days. He says what's important is that John comes preaching in the wilderness. Now, John was a really popular name in the first century. There are some four to five Johns that are mentioned in the New Testament, but he specifies. He specifies that he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. That's not his last name. Like, mine's Ashley. His is the Baptist, right? He means John the one who baptizes. John the Immerser. The Big Dipper, you might call him, right? (laughs) And interestingly, John just kind of appears on the scene out of nowhere. There's no introduction. There's no buildup there. Contrast that with uh, Luke's account, where Luke tells us a whole lot more about John and his uh, backstory. For instance, Luke tells us that John is actually a relative of Jesus. Both of their moms, Mary and Elizabeth, are 
related. And he also tells us that John the Baptist's uh, conception was also miraculous. It wasn't a, a, a virgin birth, but Elizabeth, his mom, was barren. And so it's seen as a miraculous thing that God opens her womb. But Matthew doesn't give us any of that backstory. And I think the reason that he doesn't give us that backstory is because he wants John's appearance to suddenly come out of nowhere. All right? He wants this, the, the appearance to suddenly come out of nowhere in this narrative. And I think the reason is because that's going to be similar to a character that we see in the Old Testament who John the Baptist is going to be compared to. When you meet Elijah for the first time in the Old Testament, his appearance is sudden. It's without warning. You don't have any background. You don't have any backstory there about Elijah. Just all of a sudden, you're reading the text, and it all of a sudden mentions Elijah. We'll see that later. So there's this connection that Matthew is drawing between John the Baptist and the prophet Elijah. Now, what does he say that John is doing? And where is he doing it? Let's take those in reverse order. Where is he? Notice it says that he is in the wilderness of Judea. And that's certainly a geographical marker. It kind of gives us an idea of where he is. He's probably somewhere down around the Dead Sea, somewhere around the Jordan River. So he is there, but it's more than just a geographical marker. It's also a theological statement. Again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and Matthew expects his readers to be familiar with the Old Testament, the wilderness for you should conjure up all of these theological connections. Think about the wilderness in the Old Testament. The wilderness was the place of the Exodus, for instance. It's a place of spiritual rebirth. Right? Israel wasn't brought into the wilderness in order to remain there forever, but they were brought through the wilderness into the promised land and of, uh, of the blessings of God poured out there. So the wilderness is often pictured, not only in the Exodus, but throughout the prophetic literature as well, as a place where God meets his people, as a place of God's revelation, and also of a, of a place of eventual rebirth and a flourishing. In fact, the prophets often speak of this day, this future day, when the wilderness itself will blossom, when the desert will be flowing with water and with trees and fruit and so forth. So by locating John there in the wilderness, Matthew is cluing us into the significance of this guy. We'll see that even more clearly as we keep reading. And Matthew is going to quote from Isaiah 43. We'll go ahead and look at it now. Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the wilderness is a place of preparation. And that's John the Baptist's job. John the Baptist's entire job is the preparation and proclamation. The way that he prepares the people is by proclaiming God's truths. So what do we see him doing? It says that he's preaching there in the wilderness. What is he preaching? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've talked about this before, but think about what do you think Jesus talks about more than anything else? You can tell a lot about a person by what they talk about and how often they talk about that thing. Right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let's talk a little bit about the staff. Let's talk about the staff and see if you can guess some of what the staff is about based on what Tim talks about 
What were some of the things that you would say Tim loves? Germany, Germany, right? Okay, he does love Germany. He actually speaks German. What else? Barbecue, cars, wine, singing. That's right. What about Jared? (laughs) It's just a mic drop moment. Jared does love crying, right? What else? Messi, yes, he loves Lionel Messi. He loves uh, not just race cars, but F1, right? In fact, he, he abhors NASCAR, right? He so loves F1. Uh, what, about, uh, what about Carl? French horn, all right? He does love French horn. What else? Someone said pizza? He has pizza nights for the youth. He loves uh, lawn care. If you didn't know this about him, he's obsessed with it. He loves opera. He loves Rubik's Cubes. There's a lot of things that he loves, all right? So what would you think that Jesus loves on the basis of what does Jesus talk about all the time? Some people would answer that question and say, Jesus is all about love. He talks about love more than anything else. Or he talks about faith more than anything else. Or he talks about grace more than anything else. Or he talks about justice more than anything else. In reality, Jesus talks about a lot of those. He talks about all of those things. And he loves all of those things, but they aren't the dominant thing. By and large, what Jesus talks about more than anything else is the kingdom. Think about how often you hear these words. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, I mean, I'm sorry, the New Testament, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Heard a bunch of murmurs, all right? Let me give you a hint. Everything I'm about to say involves kingdom, so just yell out kingdom if you don't know what I... If you don't know the verse, it's all right. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the what? Kingdom Kingdom of heaven. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Or it's like a grain of mustard seed. Or it's like a net thrown into the sea. Or only with difficulty can a rich person enter what? The kingdom. Or to Peter, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. If you want to summarize... The theme of Christ's ministry in one word, it's kingdom. That's it. And here we see that John is actually talking about the same thing, which makes sense because John's job is to prepare the way for the king, for Christ. So what is the kingdom? Well, imagine a world with no sin. Imagine a world with no suffering, with no sickness, a world with no death, a world with none of the effects of the fall. A world with no obstacles to enjoying God's benevolence. A world with no obstacle to the rule and reign of God. That's the kingdom. Think about what happens at the fall of mankind. Not only does death enter into the world, but also sickness and natural disasters and demonic oppression and so forth. Now think back to Jesus' life. You're familiar with the gospel accounts. You think of Jesus' life, especially the three years of his public ministry, and what is it that Jesus is going around and doing? In particular, think of Jesus' miracles. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He calms the storm. He casts out demon. he even, uh, demons. He even defeats death itself. So what's Jesus doing there? Why is he doing these things in particular? Of all the things that Jesus could do, why is he doing these particular things? Those aren't just these neat magic tricks. 
They are specific manifestations of his authority. When he heals the sick, he shows he has authority over sickness. When he casts out demons, he shows he has authority even over the demons. When he calms the sea, he shows that he has authority even over creation. When he raises the dead, and he himself is even raised, he shows that he has authority over death. In other words, every single obstacle, every single impediment to the rule and reign of God has been overcome in Christ. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is about authority. It's about the restoration of God's unimpeded authority over all things. In those miraculous signs, Christ is demonstrating the kingdom. He's demonstrating that he has authority to overcome the effects of sin. Now, what does that have to do with the gospel? We want to be a people who are gospel-centered. So why are we spending all this time talking about the kingdom? Well, in reality, those two words should overlap in your mind. The gospel is the kingdom, and the kingdom is the gospel. That should be a theological word association that exists for you. If I say peanut butter and you think jelly... Or if I say macaroni and you think cheese, or if I, think, if I say Texas and you think promised land, right? There are these associations that you have in your mind. Likewise, when I say the word gospel, you should think kingdom. Or when I say kingdom, you should think gospel. Those overlap. That's not just something I'm making up. Look, we see it in Scripture. I'll give you a few examples of this. Matthew 4.23 and he, uh, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, notice this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. And notice what he's doing, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's demonstrating. He's proclaiming, and then he's also manifesting or demonstrating the gospel. Notice it's the gospel of the kingdom. You see that same phrase in Matthew 9.35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Or if you were to flip over to the book of Mark, you would read this in chapter 1. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So he's proclaiming the gospel and he's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So notice Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, and the content of that gospel is the kingdom of God. So again, when I say gospel, you should think kingdom. When I say kingdom, you should think gospel. This fits, by the way, with the, 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 the way that the Greek word euangelion, from which we get the word evangelism or evangel, which means good news or gospel. The way that that Greek word euangelion was used in Greco-Roman literature, even in secular literature. It was a word that was used when a king would conquer his enemies or when a king would be born. There would be a proclamation that would go out. We even have inscriptions that say the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, which is the exact same way that some of the gospels start. So a proclamation would go out saying the beginning of the gospel of this particular king and that was showing that the king has defeated his enemies or the king has been born and been enthroned as king or whatever it might be. So not only in biblical terms, but also just in secular Greco-Roman culture, the word gospel, euangelion, was related to the idea of kingdom. 
And when we think of a kingdom today, we typically think of a place. If I say the United Kingdom, that refers to a place. It refers to the island of Great Britain and to a part of the island of uh, Ireland. So we think of, uh, of these physical, geographical boundaries to a kingdom. That's not the way that kingdom works in Scripture, though. That's not what the kingdom means in the New Testament. Kingdom in the New Testament is not a place. It's about power. It doesn't work in our context, right? If you were to talk about the, the, the kingdom of Her Majesty the Queen, we know she doesn't have much power. It's more of a titular sort of role. All right? She's a figurehead. She doesn't actually have any sort of, uh, of technical sort of power. But in the New Testament, that's the way that kingdom works. It isn't about a place, it's about power. The kingdom isn't so much the realm in which God reigns. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it refers to the rule and reign itself. There's a difference there. The realm of God's rule versus God's rule itself. Kingdom refers to God's rule and God's reign. In other words, when the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it's speaking about God's authority. How does the book of Matthew end? Jesus is giving the Great Commission, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. By the way, that reference to heaven and earth is really important. You ever wonder why Matthew says kingdom of heaven? We're going to read that a whole lot in Matthew's gospel. Whereas if you were to read the other synoptic gospels, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they're called the Synoptic Gospels because they're all kind of telling the same story from the same sort of picture. John's is uh, going to give us kind of a, uh, a different perspective on the Gospel. Same Gospel, just a complementary sort of perspective. So why is it that Matthew says kingdom of heaven, whereas in Mark and Luke it always says kingdom of God? What's the difference? Is there a difference? Well, some people say that there is a difference. In particular, one is temporal and the other is eternal. That's a common view, especially among a, a, a particular theological view that's called dispensationalism. I don't think that that is true. I don't think that kingdom of heaven refers to something different than the kingdom of God. So others will say that they're the same thing, but that Matthew uses heaven rather than God because he's a Jew. and He doesn't want to say God's name out of respect for God's name. And that sounds like a good explanation. The problem with that is that Matthew will occasionally use the phrase kingdom of God. And he will use the word God a number of times. So that doesn't seem to make sense to say that sometimes he wouldn't use it and sometimes he would use it. Then he's just an inconsistent Jew or something like that. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God appear to be used somewhat synonymously. So I think they're referring to the same thing. So why does he use kingdom of heaven so much whereas the other gospels use kingdom of God. In fact, the phrase kingdom of heaven, it appears 32 times in the New Testament. Anybody want to guess how many of those are used in Matthew? 32. Every single one. It's the only place we see the phrase kingdom of heaven. So it's obviously a, a particular nuance that Matthew wants to bring out. What is he bringing out? Well, one of the themes that we'll see as we go through this book is that Matthew is going to constantly contrast heaven and earth. They're going to see that contrast throughout. Even when Jesus said, remember the Great Commission, all authority 
is given unto me in heaven and earth. There's this contrast between the two. Earth is viewed as the realm of sin and the realm of Satan. Heaven is seen as the realm of God. So when Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, that means the same thing as kingdom of God, but he's using that heaven and earth sort of contrast that we'll see throughout Matthew. So I think it's a linguistic distinction that he's making there in order to clue us in on that contrast. Earth is one realm and heaven is another realm. Earth is uh, this realm of sin and Satan. Heaven is the realm of God and his peace and glory and all of those sorts of things. Before the fall, there was this overlap that existed between heaven and earth. That's why when you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God dwells among man. He dwells among his creation in some sense. But then with the fall, there is this division that exists. There's this separation between heaven and earth as a result of sin. And so God dwells in heaven, man on earth. And so there are these places where heaven and earth overlap, the tabernacle, the temple, and so forth. But in general, there is this separation between the two. Only in Jesus do we see that overlap restored so that heaven and earth can again overlap. And that's already happening in John's day. The kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. Notice he says the kingdom is at hand. In other words, he's speaking of this reality in theological terms. We call it inaugurated eschatology. A classic sort of way of understanding it is already, but not yet. Is the kingdom here right now? And the answer to that is yes. But the answer to that is also no. Depends on what you mean when you ask, is the kingdom already here? Yes, the kingdom is here in the sense that it has been inaugurated. That's why it's called inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology means study of the end times. Yes, in the sense that the kingdom has already been inaugurated. But no, the kingdom is not here if by that we mean consummation. It hasn't been consummated. Christ has defeated Satan. Christ has defeated sin. Christ has defeated death. But we still die. Satan is still at work. And sin is still operative in us. So it's been defeated, but it's not been utterly destroyed. The kingdom has been inaugurated, inaugurated, but not consummated. It's already, but not yet. And by the way, as Christians, we can err on either side of that equation. There are some Christians who, uh, who stress the present implications of the gospel to, su to, to such a degree that they have what's called an over-realized eschatology. Over-realized eschatology. They, they love the idea the kingdom is already here. They shout that from the rooftop, rooftops. They dismiss the not yet aspect of that. An example of that over-realized eschatology would be the prosperity gospel, which says that, uh, that God wants you to be healthy and, and wealthy. Now, is it true that God desires for you to have a perfectly healthy body? The answer to that is yes. But is that something that's promised in this age, or is that something that's promised in the age to come? The age to come. So that's called an over-realized eschatology. When we take this eschatological, this end-time promise of God, and we attempt to wrongly apply it in the present, as if God has promised it here and now. 
So that's one error that we can make. We can stress the already and neglect the not yet. The other error is obviously that we do the opposite of that. It's called an under-realized eschatology. For instance, suppose you're talking to someone about their sin. And they were to say, you know, we won't be fully free. We will never be fully free of sin until the resurrection. So we really shouldn't expect any great victory in that area until then. It's okay for me to be addicted to pornography. It's okay for me to use filthy language. It's okay for me to get drunk. It's okay for me to do drugs. It's okay for me to cheat on my spouse because we're never going to be perfect until the resurrection. So we shouldn't expect victory in that area until then. That's under-realized eschatology. That's so stressing the not yet of the gospel or the kingdom that you're excluding the already. Should we expect perfect sanctification in this life? Of course not. But should we expect and should we strive for greater and greater sanctification? Of course we should. All right, so there's errors on either side that we need to avoid. You have to hold both the already and the not yet. Oftentimes, most heresies, most false teachings in church history comes when we're presented with these two truths and we're supposed to hold on to both of those truths and instead what we do is we let go of one. Is Jesus God or is Jesus man? Yes. If you stress one of those in a way that neglects the other, you've sinned. Is God three or is God one? Yes. Is God perfectly sovereign or are we responsible for our sins? Yes. Error and false teaching comes when we let go of one of those. So the kingdom is already, but it's also not yet. So when John is saying that the kingdom is at hand, he's stressing this already aspect. He's saying it's starting. God's redemptive work is beginning. The restoration of the rule and the reign of God is commencing. It's being inaugurated. It's already here. Beginning with what? Beginning with the person and work of Christ, who is the promised king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. So what do we do? If the kingdom is at hand, what should we do? Well, if you were to ask most 21st century American Christians, maybe even some of us in this room, and we were to ask that question, the kingdom is at hand, what therefore should we do? We would say believe. We would say that's the proper response to the gospel, faith, and that's true. But notice that's not what John the Baptist says. That's not what Matthew writes. What does he say? What does he write? He says repent. What does that mean? Well, literally the Greek word is formed from two words. The first one is change. And the second word is mind. So some people have thought that that's what repentance entails. It just means to change your mind. Unfortunately, that's not the way language works. We can't just take the etymology or the origin of a word and think that's what that word means. Let me give you an example. The word butterfly. It's formed from two words, right? Butter and fly. Does that mean that, butter, that butterflies are just flies covered in butter? That you can milk a fly and get butter or something like that? Of course not. So the fact that a word is formed from another word doesn't mean that you can simply look up the origin of the word for a definition. A fancy term for that is called the etymological or the root fallacy. Yes, the Greek word for repentance was formed from two words, meaning change and mind, but repentance 
Biblically, it's actually much more than that. In fact, this same Greek word is actually related to two Hebrew words. Two Hebrew words. One of those Hebrew words means to be sorry or to be contrite. And the other means to turn around toward new actions. That's a better description of what repentance entails. Those two Hebrew words, to be sorry, to be contrite, and then to turn around in one's actions. That's what repentance entails. It's a change in one's affection. You're contrite, you're sorry. It's a heart change, it's a mind change. That's why I said it's not just a mind change, it has to be more than that. But it's not less than that. So it's a change in one's affections leading to a change in one's actions. Repentance always involves both to some degree, affections and actions. If your actions change but your heart doesn't, that isn't real repentance, right? The Pharisees did that. But if your heart changes and your actions don't, there's concern that your heart hasn't actually changed because repentance involves both affection and action. And this is the heart of one's response to the gospel. Repentance should be the natural response to the gospel. To demonstrate that, think about the reality of what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. When we say the kingdom of God is at hand, we mean the king is here. The problem with that is that we think that's good news, right? Kingdom equals gospel. Gospel equals good news. The king is here. That's good news. There's a sense in which it's good news. There's also a sense in which it's really bad news. I'll tell you what's really bad news, because you and I are traitors. We're rebels. We're guilty of treason. That's not good news for you and me. The fact that the king is here is terrifying news to you and me. If you're found guilty of treason, what's your only hope? Your only hope is that the, the king would show you mercy, that you would fall down and plead for mercy. You see, when the king arrives, it's very obvious that we are rebels, that we have transgressed his authority. So this is why repentance is so important and so profound and so significant from a Protestant perspective in particular. That's why when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, thesis number one, the very first thing that Luther says when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. It's not a one-time work. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's not like we repent when we hear the gospel and then we go and live a life without repentance. Our entire life is marked by repentance. By the way, 30 years later, Luther's last written words were these, we are beggars, this is true. Those ideas are connected. For Luther, indeed for all Protestants, for all of us in this room, for thinking biblically, because we are beggars, our life should be one of repentance. That should be the proper response to the gospel. But I've thought that we believe as Protestants, we believe in justification by faith alone. Why are we talking about repentance? The reason is because faith without repentance is impossible. Just like repentance without faith is impossible. 
from a biblical perspective, from a theological perspective, those are distinct but inseparable graces. Think about it like this, all right? If I were to turn around on stage, turn around on stage, and I face the back wall, there's two different ways that I could describe that. I could say that I'm turning away from you, or I could also say that I'm turning toward the back wall. But notice there's only one term. There's only one turn there. I only turn one time, and yet that one uh, turn can be described in two different ways depending on your perspective. I'm turning away from something, but at the same time, I'm also turning toward something. Similarly, we might say that is faith and repentance. Faith is turning toward God, while repentance is turning away from sin. You can't do one without the other. Both are necessary and indivisible. The same way that I can't physically turn away from something without turning towards something. Likewise, you can't spiritually turn away from sin without turning toward God or turn toward God without turning away from sin. So the kingdom of God is at hand. The rule and reign of God is here. It's here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that kingdom exposes us as traitors. So if we want to receive the kingdom as the gospel... Not of bad news of judgment, of wrath, of fury, of tribulation, of distress. If we want to receive it as gospel, as joy, as hope, as life, then we need to repent. Let's keep going. Verse 3, for this is he who, uh, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So according to Matthew, John the Baptist is the one who was prophesied by Isaiah, we mentioned this passage before. I'll read it again in its immediate context. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and say to her that her warfare has ended it, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice again the role of the messenger. He has prepared the way of the Lord. Now maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't. Hopefully it's correct on the screen behind me. But Lord, in Isaiah 40 was all caps. What does that mean if you read Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament? It means Yahweh, right? There is a word that we translate as Lord in Hebrew. It's the word Adonai. Adonai is a generic word. You could use it of a master. You could use it of a king. You could use it of a a human ruler or lord or master or something like that. But when you read the word Lord in all capitals, that means that the word Adonai is not used. Instead, the Tetragrammaton is used. Tetragrammaton is the divine name of God, Y-H-W-H. You might have heard that pronounced as Jehovah. It's a mispronunciation, probably best pronounced something like Yahweh. So that means here that the word that is used here is Yahweh. So according to Isaiah... Notice what this messenger is doing. He's preparing the way for Yahweh. 
That's fascinating because how does John the Baptist view his role? He views his role as preparing the way for who? Jesus. Which either means that John the Baptist was mistaken and that Matthew was mistaken and that Isaiah was mistaken or it means that Jesus is Yahweh. He's not just a Lord, he is the Lord. Jesus himself is God. As Matthew writes, the glory of the Lord, or I'm sorry, as Isaiah writes, the glory of the Lord of Yahweh shall be revealed. And it has been revealed in his Son. So John's role is to bear witness to this reality. That's why John will elsewhere say that, uh, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Or to use another example from the Gospels, John is the best man, Jesus is the groom. Think back to a wedding that you've been in or maybe your own wedding. What's the role of the best man? The role of the best man is to help the groom. Make no mistake, that day isn't about the best man. To be fair, it really isn't about the groom either. But... <laughs> But go with the analogy for a second. It isn't about the best man. It isn't about the maid of honor. It isn't about the groomsmen. It isn't about the bridesmaids. It's about the bride and the groom. John the Baptist is the opening act. He's the warm-up for the headliner. Does that mean he's insignificant? Of course not. He's very significant. Jesus is going to speak very highly of John the Baptist. But compared to Jesus, he's insignificant. His role is to prepare the hearts of people to receive the king. Calling people, people to repentance, calling people to new hearts so that when Christ comes, they receive him and give him the worship that he deserves. Let's keep going. Matthew 3, 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is the kind of passage that if you're being honest... You might skip over when you're just reading. Who cares what he ate? Who cares what he wore? That seems like an irrelevant sort of detail. When in reality, this detail is packed with meaning if we have, if we have eyes to see. Again, in particular, if we're familiar with the Old Testament. There are multiple levels of what's happening here. On one level, you see something here about John the Baptist's character, right? There's nothing elaborate to his dress or to his diet. There's nothing ostentatious. He lives simply. He's like Ron Swanson, right? He's living off the land. He's pursuing this life, simplicity and self-denial. It's one of the things we talked about in Theological Equipping a couple of weeks ago. That's one level, but there's more to it than that. Below the surface, there's something incredible happening here. Think back to the opening illustration. Sometimes when you describe someone's outfit, that clues you in on someone's identity. That's what's happening here. If you were deeply immersed in the Old Testament, the minute that you read about someone wearing a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt, you would think of someone in particular. Look at 2 Kings 1, 7 through 8. The king of Israel said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Notice, not only is Elijah described as wearing these particular things, the same things that John is wearing, but it's so acknowledged that's what he wore that when someone mentioned his outfit, 
Notice that's what the people said. They said, uh, the king says, who was it? And they said, I don't know who it was, but he wore a garment of hair and a leather belt. And immediately, just on the basis of that description, the king knows, oh, that's Elijah. They know who he is. Now, what's so significant about describing John the Baptist in a way that parallels Elijah? Look at Malachi 3. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Notice, this is saying something similar to what we just read in Isaiah 40. Someone is coming, and that someone is going to prepare the way for Yahweh. But who is this mysterious messenger? Keep reading. Chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this one who is preparing the way of the Lord is described as Elijah. And what's his role? His role is to call people to repentance. He's going to turn the hearts By the way, this connection is made explicit even later in the book of Matthew. For example, Matthew 17, 10 through 13, the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So according to Jesus, John the Baptist is Elijah. Now there's a really confusing passage. If you're just reading this on the surface, there's a confusing passage in John's gospel where people ask John the Baptist, different John, the Apostle John versus John the Baptist. People ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And John the Baptist says, nope, I am not. So then you're thinking, what's going on, right? Is John the Baptist wrong? Is he lying? Is Jesus wrong? Is he lying? Is there a contradiction there? The answer is no, not at all. What John means when he says, I'm not Elijah, is he means I'm not physically, actually, personally, Elijah. I'm not Elijah just simply reincarnated or resurrected or something like that. Yes, I am Elijah in this prophetic metaphorical sense, We've talked a lot about typology over the past few weeks in a typological sort of sense. I'm Elijah, but not physically. I'm not truly Elijah. That's what John the Baptist is saying here. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this expectation of a prophet like Elijah. And that's significant for another reason as well. Remember, one of the clearest places that we read that prophetic expectation is in Malachi. Malachi is the one who points us to the reality that there is going to be a prophet and Elijah who is to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And if you were to open to the book of Elijah, I'm sorry, if you were to, if you were to open to the book of Elijah, you wouldn't have a Bible. If you were to open to the book of, uh, of Malachi, where would you be looking? Where is that situated in your Bible physically? Old Testament, well, where in particular in the Old Testament? The very last book, right? The absolute last book of the Old Testament. And who was the final prophet 
of Israel's Old Testament prophets. Malachi. Malachi chronologically is going to be the one who is going to be the final prophet of the period that, is, uh, that encompasses the Old Testament. Then what happens between Matthew, I'm sorry, between Malachi and Matthew? Well, if you're in your Bible, you're in the book of Malachi, and then you want to get to the book of Matthew, you flip one page, maybe two pages. It takes you about one, two seconds, all right? How long did that turn take chronologically? 400 years. What happens during that 400 years? Where it's 400 years of silence. 400 years of prophetic drought, according to the book of Amos. 400 years of a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. 400 years without a true prophet in Israel. 400 years without a word from Yahweh. Think about how long that was. America isn't even 400 years old. America isn't even 300 years old. So 400 years, think about how Israel must have felt. Abandoned, alone, confused, fearful. Not only has the king not come, but there's not even anybody speaking the word of the Lord. For 400 years, they waited for the king. For 400 years, they waited for someone to speak a revelation of the king. Then suddenly, John the Baptist comes on the scene. I think that's why Matthew doesn't give us that backstory. He wants us to feel that abruptness. Suddenly, there's a prophet in the land. And that prophet is declaring that the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's already. So no wonder all are coming out to see him. The hopes and expectations of their fathers and their father's fathers and their father's 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 fathers were coming to pass. So let's look at that and see the response of the people. Matthew 3, 5 through 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Notice that relatively huge crowds are coming. Not every single person in the region, but enough that Matthew describes it as all Judea, all the region. By the way, that's going to set the stage for later trouble. Right? The authorities throughout the Gospels are always going to fear the crowds. They're going to fear the potential of an uprising, of a riot, of a rebellion. Something that has happened in Israel's history, if you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah, the Maccabean revolt, they're familiar what happens when the Jews rebel against their authorities. And so the fact that these huge crowds are going out to the John the Baptist is kind of forebodes something negative for him. Ultimately, he will be beheaded. But the people are going out and they're doing two things. Notice they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized. Those are connected by the way, remember earlier we said that baptism and faith and repentance are all connected. Faith and repentance, you might think of as two sides of the same coin. One's turning away from something, the other's turning towards something. They're different ways of talking about that same turn toward God, away from sin. That's faith and repentance. And then baptism is this visible sign of that turning. And then what is confession? Confession is the verbal acknowledgement of that repentance. They're all the same way of speaking of the same events. They're confessing their sins and they're being baptized. 
And John the Baptist actually wasn't the first person to baptize people. Baptism was actually practiced in other cultures, other religions. It was even practiced in Judaism. But there were some aspects to John's baptism that are kind of distinct and that bleed into the later practice of Christian baptism. Right? We see John's baptism is somewhat unique and different from Jewish baptism, and also it's somewhat distinct from Christian baptism. It's kind of a transitory sort of thing. So we see in John's ministry and in his baptism a transition from kind of Jewish tradition to Christian practice. He's doing neither what Jewish tradition has historically done, nor is he doing exactly what the apostles would later do. And we see in the book of Acts, he's kind of somewhere in between. So let's talk briefly about, uh, about how John is different from traditional Jewish practice in particular. In Jewish tradition, there were two things that were kind of like baptism. The first was proselyte baptism. Proselyte means people who are being converted into your religion. People who were converted from another religion into Judaism, they were immersed into water as a symbol of that new religion, as a symbol of their new life. Notice John is really different because it seems like the people that John are baptizing, John is baptizing, are already Jews. So he's not doing proselyte baptism. By the way, this will get him into trouble with the authorities as well. Why are you baptizing Jews? They don't need to be baptized. They're already Jews. They're already in covenant with God. So there's something distinct about what John is doing here. Now, thankfully, Jewish tradition had something kind of similar to baptism for Jews as well. Baptism itself was for proselytes, those who were converting. But they had something for Jews as well. Not really baptism, but rather these ritualistic washings. You can still travel to Israel today and see these huge cisterns where Jews would ritualistically wash themselves. They would have to do that over and over and over again. They would have to do it on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis or annually or whatever it might be. So we see, again, John is different here. He's not baptizing the same people over and over and over again. But here's the point. I, th I think that what John is doing is he's demonstrating that what is needed to be right with God isn't just this light cleansing. Who is right with God isn't just Jews. Notice he's baptizing Jews. And what is needed isn't just this external cleansing like the Jews were used to. It's not just this temporary scrubbing, clean the outside of the cup. What John is doing is he's showing that what's necessary is a radical and holistic and all-encompassing conversion, an entirely new life. This will be a big distinction between Jesus and John and his apostles and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. You don't merely clean the outside of the cup or the outside of the body. You need entirely new hearts, entirely new natures. And water baptism is a representation of that deeper immersion in which we have died to sin. We're made alive to walk in the Spirit. That's what repentance entails. Re repentance entails this recognition that you are fundamentally broken and in need of grace. You aren't mostly clean. You aren't mostly good. You aren't kind of clean. You aren't kind of good. You are entirely, totally depraved apart from God's grace. 
And furthermore, what God's grace entails isn't just forgiveness. Yes, it is forgiveness. Yes and amen to that. Praise Christ. Grace is that. We are freely and absolutely and fully forgiven. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace is also utterly transformative. In John's ministry, at this point in the gospel, it isn't quite clear yet how that grace will be demonstrated. But as the story develops, we'll see that focus is directed to Christ. The kingdom is at hand means I'm talking about the king. And as the book progresses, we'll see the king is Jesus. In fact, the word Christ means anointed, when he was anointed like a king. John baptized with water, but Christ baptizes with his spirit. What John symbolizes, Christ fulfills. What John previews, Christ is going to portray. And John hearkens us to this table, but Christ himself is the feast. So what do we do with this text? Well, we repent. That's what you do with the text. You repent. You turn from sin. You turn toward God in recognition not only of his authority, but also in hope and anticipation of his mercy. How exactly do we that? How exactly do we do that? I want to walk you through that as we prepare for communion. For now, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I confess that it's good. I thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist who compared to your son is so insignificant and yet your son will also say that among those born of women there is no one greater. And so he is profoundly significant for us. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And I confess that 2,000 years later, that message still needs to be heard. That our hearts need to be prepared. And they're not prepared by John the Baptist. They're not prepared by our own works. They're prepared by your spirit. And so I pray that your spirit would incline our hearts to you. That we might actually repent. Repent of our sin and live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We pray these things. Because you're good and you do good, so we ask in Christ's name, amen.